Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. When sin first entered the world with Adam and Eve, God explained man's consequences for that sin. But through his grace and mercy, he also promised a redeemer who would save us from all those sins. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God wove examples, feasts, Old Testament practices, and prophecies about his promised Messiah. Some of those are easily recognized because we see the fulfillment in Christ in the New Testament. Others are more obscure becoming apparent only as we clearly understand the whole of the Bible. Today, we're going to look into one of those more obscure prophecies that points to Christ as our Messiah. I'm Debbie Blank, encouraging you to grab a pencil and piece of paper so we can show you who Jesus is and what he did for us through the tabernacle. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. We all learn in a variety of ways, and God, our Creator, knows and uses all of those ways to reveal Himself and His plan of salvation to us. As somewhat of a visual learner myself, it's wonderful and fascinating that God provided His people with a picture of the Messiah and salvation through the temple's location, structure, furnishings, utensils, and more. Everything points to Jesus. So the temple wasn't only a place to worship, make sacrifices, or study the scriptures. It was a place to be immersed in God's revelation of himself and his son and the miraculous plan of salvation through his perfect sacrifice. And on today's program, we're going to take you through the design and significance of each section of the temple. Oh, and it's so exciting to read it, too. When God first gave Moses the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, he also gave him an outline for a sanctuary to be built for God. In Exodus 25, 8, we're told that God describes this sanctuary as a place that I may dwell among my people. Imagine, the Jews had never seen God, yet now they're going to have God dwelling with them. The Jews never had direct access to God. They always had to go through Moses and the priests. But at least God was there in their midst when Moses and the priests went in to worship. We, on the other hand, have a totally different access to God for worship that we'll talk about later. But when it comes to this tabernacle, if you have a pencil and paper, I encourage you to draw a rectangle. And you do that by making the left and right lines the longest ones, and then making the bottom and the top lines about half the size of the left and right ones, because the tabernacle was rectangular in shape. It was 100 cubits by 50 cubits, which is really 100 feet by 75 feet. It was designed that way with curtains all around it that would protect people from not being able to look into the tabernacle. They had to go through the door to get into the areas where all the utensils and all the activities were taking place. Whenever the Jews camped, In the wilderness, they always placed the tabernacle right in the middle of the camp. And then, as the two temples were built on the pattern of the tabernacle, those temples were always placed on the Temple Mount, the place where God met with his people. And he will again meet with his people when the new temples are built. So it's really interesting that it is the same pattern. 
whether it was the tabernacle in the wilderness or whether it was the first or second temple and also what's described for future temples, it's all that same pattern. So that must mean something if it's repeated over and over again. It does, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, it's interesting when you read the book of Exodus, Moses spent pretty much the last half of the book explaining every detail of the articles for this tabernacle. You and I might read them and think, this is a little boring, but God placed them in his holy word for a reason. He knows that they're important. And he wants us to know that also. So that's why we're going to examine those articles today and see how God uses every piece in the tabernacle to show us Christ's attributes and his worthiness as our Savior. So let's go to our diagram that you have made and start at the bottom by putting a door in there. Because in order to get into the Holy of Holies in the holy place and the outer court, you have to walk through a door. As I said, the tabernacle is surrounded by curtains that could not be entered except through the door. As we read John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus is recognizing here that he's the door. Now we know that's the door to salvation, but walking into the tabernacle is the way of salvation also. And we notice in the tabernacle, there's no other door. There's one door. And we know that the way to salvation is one way, and that's through Jesus. That's right. Only one entrance into the tabernacle and only one entrance to heaven. We have to turn to Jesus. Well, as soon as they walk into the door, the first thing they see is an altar of brass. This altar is designed for the sacrifices that take place. Generally, the blood is taken and put inside the Holy of Holies, but it's outside in this altar of brass where the sacrifices take place. We know from John chapter 1, verse 29, that Jesus is our sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the sacrifices were designed to take away the sins of mankind. So Jesus now is fulfilling that sacrifice. He's offering reconciliation for sin for all who will turn to him. And I think of that scene with John the Baptist watching Jesus come toward him. And he says to those around him, see the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And those people should have known, would have recognized that the Lamb of God would be at least an allusion to a sacrifice. They should have, but they didn't. They missed it when Jesus came the first time. They missed all of these aspects of the tabernacle that pointed to Jesus. Because remember, the tabernacle was a place where God dwelt in the midst of the people. And Jesus is the one who dwelt in the midst of the people so that he could save them from their sins. Well, now after they've offered their sacrifice, you see the brass laver. That's a huge bowl that sits in the middle of the outer court. And again, it's brass. Well, we have to realize this is where the priests would wash themselves so that they would be cleansed in order to do the sacrifices or in order to be able to go into the holy place. Well, we know from John 4.10, when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman, he said, I am the living water. So Jesus will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And he also tells us in John 15, 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. These are Jesus' own words where he himself describes himself as fulfilling all of these articles. When he says he's already cleansed us by the word, which I've spoken, he's talking about his word where he proves that he's the Messiah throughout all of the Gospels, as well, of course, the Old Testament. But those aren't his exact words as we see them in the New Testament. So the labor is used for cleansing, and that's what we see Jesus doing. So we do remember the woman at the well and Jesus referring to himself as that source of living water. If you knew who you were speaking to, you would ask for that source of living water and you would never be thirsty again. That's a Jackie paraphrase. But anyway, that's the gist of it. And then we think about Jesus pouring out water into a basin and cleaning the feet of his disciples. So that's a demonstration physically of what he can do for us, what he will do for us to cleanse us from our own defilement. As people then continued into this outer court, they saw a rectangular building. Now, this building, again, had drapes all the way around the sides and over the top of it. No one could see in it. No one could go into it except the priests. It had to be made of tents of things that were portable because every time they moved in the wilderness, they had to move the tabernacle with them. So they had to take it down and set it up which would be very difficult if these were permanent buildings. So they run into this rectangular-shaped building again, and this building is comprised of two different compartments or two different rooms. The first one is known as the holy place. The second one is known as the holy of holies. When you enter the holy place, you have on the right side a table of showbread. This was a table that had 12 loaves of bread put in six compartments on each side of this that were to be used by the priests as bread for them after they had been in the tabernacle for seven days. Well, you think bread would be pretty stale after seven days, but it never was. In this case, Jesus introduces himself in John six thirty-five by saying, I am bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So again, Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. He is fulfilling again one of these articles that we see in this tabernacle. And the bread of life, as we see here, gives us eternal life. If we accept him, we never hunger spiritually because we believed in him and we never thirst spiritually because he is our hope. He is our salvation. He's our final sustenance. We no longer will need bread or water here on this earth, but we do need to have the eternal sustenance, and that is through Jesus. And we know that Jesus is the Word, and that's what we live by. That's what gives us life. So he's the Word. He's the bread of life. And I always remember the table of showbread being on the right side because I'm right-handed, and I eat with my right hand. So I think, okay, the bread's on the right hand. Because on the left hand, when you walk into the building, what you see is the menorah or the candlestick. It brought light into the holy place and would then also provide light into the Holy of Holies. This was to be lit all the time. Never were those lamps to go out. And we know from, again, John chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. 
He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is saying, what you see in the tabernacle, I am the fulfillment of that light. The light of the world that gives light into our darkness in how we live in this world, but also gives us the light of hope and eternity that we have him. When we get to eternity by reading Revelation 21 and 22, there's no need for any light because Jesus is there and he is the light of the world. And at the time of the Feast of Dedication, which is the Feast of Lights, he points to himself as being the light of the world. So he actually says, I am the light at the time that they're celebrating that menorah and that light. That's right. The Feast of Dedication came as a result of the Jews running out of oil at the time of the Maccabees in the Old Testament period. And yet they had enough oil to keep the menorah lit until they were able to process more. That was a miracle because they had one day's worth of oil and they ended up having nine. Jesus is that light. Whenever we see darkness, we think of evil and the bad things that can happen in darkness. But Jesus' light shines through that for our eternal spiritual goals of reaching heaven through him, but also just living in the darkness of this world. We have the light of Jesus who walks us through those things. Then we move on in the holy place still. Straight ahead is the altar of incense. Now this is incense that again is on that altar 24-7 so that incense is always before the throne of God. And in this case, the throne being the holy of holies. Always the incense there. As the high priest makes intercession for the people, Jesus makes intercession for us. We see that in Hebrews 7.25 when we're told, Therefore, Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is what the high priest did for the people. And the altar of incense represents that. Now, there's another place in 2 Corinthians 2.14 that tells us that thanks be to God who always leads us in the triumph of Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. So there is talking about the sweet aroma of Jesus and the altar of incense had sweet aroma on it. Keep in mind that as we talk about the high priest being our intercessor, Jesus is our high priest. If we read Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, well, actually the whole book of Hebrews, we realize that Jesus is the one who makes sacrifice for us once for all, the just for the unjust. He's the only one who could be a priest and a king at the same time because a priest came from the tribe of Levi and a king came from the tribe of Judah and you couldn't be both tribes. You were only one tribe. And yet Jesus, being God, being our intercessor, being our Messiah, is able to make that atonement for us as the perfect high priest. So we move from the outer court where the animal sacrifices were into the holy place where the sacrifice is a sacrifice of incense. And so Jesus goes from being the sacrifice to being the high priest. That's right. Now, separating the holy place from the holy of holies was a veil. It was a very thick veil so that no one could go in the Holy of Holies except for that high priest once a year. 
You may recall that when Jesus died on the cross, we're told in scriptures that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now that temple, more than the tabernacle, the tabernacle had a veil of fabric. The temple would have had a veil of concrete or blocks or something different. So to be torn in two from top to bottom is something that only God could do. And it's an example of how through Jesus' death, God opened the area for us to now to have access to God. Not just the high priest, but for you and I to have access to God. And we know that Jesus is the veil. His blood is a veil, according to Hebrews ten nineteen and 20. It says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. So Jesus again fulfills this aspect of the tabernacle with his flesh when he gave his body for us on the cross. It's the same thing as looking at this as being a very exclusive thing with that veil where no one was allowed to be in except that high priest and only once a year and only once he was purified. Very exclusive. No one else could ever go in there on penalty of death. And yet Jesus, through his flesh, has opened that up to all who would believe in him. And consider this, that the only way to have access to God is through the veil. And the only way to have access to God spiritually is through Jesus, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. And he is our veil. So we pass through the veil, which is Jesus' blood, his sacrifice, and we go into the Holy of Holies. Now, this Holy of Holies is about one-third the size of the entire building that we've been looking at. It's not very big, and it only houses one thing. That's the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box, a rectangular box. In it, according to the book of Hebrews, we're told that Moses put in it the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, and a jar of manna. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. That is where the high priest would sprinkle the blood once a year for the atonement of the sins of people. And then on top of the mercy seat were two large cherubim, golden cherubim, facing each other. We're told in Scripture that this is the place where God met with his people. And the place, as I mentioned, where the blood was sprinkled for the sacrifice for all the sins of all the people. So what's the significance of the mercy seat for Jesus? Well, we can see that in Hebrews 10, 10 through 12. It reads, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of blood of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But he, that's Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus is our perfect one-time sacrifice. And we're told in Romans 3, verses 24 to 25, that Jesus is our propitiation through his blood. And that means satisfaction. The word propitiation is God's satisfaction for our sins. And you know that the name for the mercy seat is the same root word as propitiation. 
because Jesus paid for our sins. Let me read that passage in Romans 3. It says, being justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now that means that God displayed him as a satisfaction for sins for all mankind through the blood of Christ if we have faith in Jesus. And then he goes on to say, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the mercy seat. He is that propitiation. His blood, his sacrifice atoned for sins so that no other high priest has to do that day in or day out for the rest of history. It's already been taken care of. Jesus is the glory, the fulfillment. Everything about Jesus fulfilled everything in the tabernacle. And remember, the tabernacle was designed to be a place where God dwelt with his people. Jesus now dwells with us through his Holy Spirit. We don't need the temple anymore or the tabernacle because we have the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, we're told, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And again in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. So we are the temple. We're the temple because God dwells in us. We're told they no longer need a physical place for God to dwell with them, and we don't either because we have Jesus fulfilling all the requirements of the tabernacle and opening the door, or specifically the veil, with his flesh so that we can have God dwelling in us, among us, with us, if we will believe in the Messiah. Remember, John 1.14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When he says he dwelt among us, the Greek word for that is he tabernacled among us. So right there, we're told that Jesus is our tabernacle. He's our fulfillment of being able to be with God and have him dwell with us all the time. Debbie, we know that when Moses built the tabernacle, he did it at God's specific instructions. All the details, everything. He followed everything because it was a specific pattern for a specific place. The true temple that's in heaven that is written about in Revelation. So we have the copy of what God showed him to represent the true temple in heaven. That's right. And Jesus now has passed through because he fulfilled the tabernacle requirements. He is now in heaven living in that tabernacle or that temple that God has displayed. It was the perfect tabernacle. We see all that in Hebrews. I'm just going to read a couple of verses because it's very detailed. But it says in Hebrews 8, 1 and 2 and 5, Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne in the majesty in the heavens. Of course, that's Jesus a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. That tells us that there's a true tabernacle in heaven, and Jesus is there now. 
Verse 5 goes on to say, who serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect a tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So God wanted this earthly tabernacle to be designed after the heavenly ones, specifically to point to the Messiah. Yes, that's where they conducted their sacrifices, and that's where the high priest would conduct the Yom Kippur Day of Atonement for the people. But that tabernacle was designed to point to Jesus. So people would see the articles, and then when Jesus admitted that he was the bread of life, that he was the light of the world, that he was the door, all these things, when he admitted those, they should have seen that those were articles in the tabernacle. And if people wanted to be with God, they had to come through Jesus. That's why God designed it here on earth. And then there's also another little interesting thing in Genesis chapter 49.10 that tells us, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now Shiloh there is referring to the Messiah, because that is a prophesying to Judah, one of Jacob's sons, who would be the tribal leader by which the Messiah would come. So Shiloh means peaceful one, gift from God. We recognize that Shiloh is a name for the Messiah. If we go back in the history of Israel, we will see that the tabernacle was housed in the city of Shiloh for 369 years longer than any other place that the tabernacle was housed. Now, the temple lasted longer than that, but when we're talking about the tabernacle, it was housed in Shiloh, where the seat of government really was for that length of period of time. Isn't it interesting that God says in Genesis that the Messiah would be called Shiloh, and the city that housed tabernacle that points to the Messiah was named Shiloh. The tabernacle or the temple, they're no longer necessary because Jesus has fulfilled it all. Will you turn to Jesus? You have direct access to him now. According to Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, we're told that, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Did you catch that? We can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We have direct access to God now through Jesus Christ if we will only believe. And that means to turn our hearts and our souls to Jesus believe that he's God, believe that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, and that he is the one who makes intercession for us in heaven. He fulfills Old Testament prophecies. He is our Messiah. It's time to turn to him today so that you can have the joy of God living within you. I want to add just one final important detail. We've established today that it was the tabernacle and temple where God dwelt with his people. Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of those dwelling places, so there's no need for them anymore. Plus, we now, as the Church of Christ, are filled with the Holy Spirit, so we are the temple of God. 
Yet there is coming a time when there is no need for any temple of any sort because God and Jesus are the temple. Revelation 21:22 confirms that when it says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now that's a time to look forward to. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.